What's up, my friends? My name's Kyle. I surf, I make movies, and I love asking questions. These are conversations with fascinating people I meet along the way. And boy, oh boy, last week did I get some fun waves. For about five days straight, we were met with northeast winds, plenty of swell, and beautiful sandbars that had been formed by all of the rain we have been getting. I was lucky enough to be able to surf every single day, and by the end of each day, my arms were tired, my hair was salty and had kernels of sand in it, and I had the stupid smile one only gets from getting barreled all day long. I was happy. But there was an odd schism in my mind because last week uh, was one of the most agitated uh, weeks I've experienced ever politically. Um, You know, people are angry, to say the least. And there has been an air of anxiety in the air. So it was weird to feel so calm in a time with so much anxiety. And my guest today knows all about why the ocean makes us feel calm. He is a guy who has spent his life studying what happens to us when we are in, on, and around the water. Dr. Wallace J. Nichols has been called the Keeper of the Sea by GQ Magazine and a Visionary by Outside Magazine as an innovative, silo-busting entrepreneurial scientist, movement maker, renowned marine biologist, voracious earth and idea explorer, wild water advocate, best-selling author, sought-after lecturer, fun-loving dad, and he also likes sea turtles. I highly recommend Wallace J. Nichols' book, Blue Mind, and he's writing a new one called Go Deeper. I went up to Jay's uh, cottage in Davenport, and we had a glass of wine, and we talked about life. He is one of my favorite people in the world, and he has a calm energy unlike most. You can head over to my website, kyle.surf, to get in touch with me. Give me any feedback on this podcast. Let me know who you want me to have on next. Without further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Wallace J. Nichols. Kyle Cameron here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. I was rereading your book recently. Right, yeah, I said that. You sent that uh, that message there, and it's good to hear. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. And um, I realized that 
we have something in common, which is that your parents, um, you're adopted, mm-hmm. and your parents weren't ocean people. Mm-hmm. But then when you sought out um, your real parents, mm-hmm. they were ocean people. Yeah. And I, real, I, I realized that, um, so my grandfather was uh, adopted, mm-hmm. and there was a closed adoption. Um, it, it was a closed adoption. So he never knew his real parents. And, and ever since then, I've always been fascinated with my, um, my heritage mm-hmm. and just kind of trying to figure it out wherever I can. And I found out that on my grandmother's side, her father um, was British. And when he was 14, apparently he was a championship swimmer. Wow. And he swam, um, so the fable goes, mm-hmm. so the fable goes that when he was 14, he swam the English Channel. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, there's this, this photo that my dad has that is this old, um, like, black and white photo of him with this, with this trophy. No, awesome. Yeah. But <laughs> great. Um, I always think it's so fascinating when, like, thinking back to, um, to kind of how... I'm just going to put this here. Oh, yeah. um, that would work, <laughs> wouldn't it? Um, I always think it's so fascinating, like, how little we really know about our histories. Mm. And specifically when you have some sort of passion and kind of going back to be like, wow, I wonder if my grandfather had that kind of same interesting interest in water or, or, or anything like that. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah definitely a, some simple questions that it's worth asking and pushing and, you know, I guess pulling the threads and seeing, seeing where they go and to find the, the roots of your passions. And if there, you know, if there's a genetic component to any of this, which there, there is, um, You'll you'll find some answers in there, and then obviously there's an environmental component, which is the you know the classic nature nurture debate, which has been resolved. It's both. It's uh, both. Yeah, yeah. yeah basically, uh, but as you know, the the adoption piece of it is uh, you know it turns out it, if you're an adopted kid or an adoptive parent, it's an important part of of your life, and it's it's different than. Um, obviously giving birth and, and raising a, a biological child or having biological siblings and, and it, you know, not, not better or worse, it's just different. And your, the story of your life and how you think of yourself is different. And that, that's, uh, uh, it connects up to a bunch of the stuff we're about to talk about in interesting ways, but yeah, yeah we'll get into yeah, it. That's yeah. Ca- that's kind of why I started there. But, um, at what point did you start asking yourself those questions when you, you know, you were adopted, you start having those questions about your birth parents? When did those questions really start? Always. As far back as I, I can, I can remember basically. And, and before I knew what the word meant, you know, I, I didn't know, I didn't really know what it, adoption was or what being adopted meant, but I liked it <laughs> and I was proud of it. And, uh, I didn't understand human reproduction or, or genetics, but um, even when I was very young, but, you know, my parents, there was no secret, there was no, you know, there was no sort of trunk in the attic moment where I opened it up and it's like, oh my God, I'm adopted. It was uh, always, and, and I was proud of it because why not? Uh, my parents presented it that way, like we, we wanted you, we, we love you. We needed you, and so we got you uh, from the store <laughs> and uh, to the adoption store, and got you and uh, picked you. And so I was proud of it. And uh, I remember, actually, remember my mom saying, "You know, 
I'm getting calls from the parents of your friends and their their kids want to be adopted because you're so into it and can just tune it down a little bit because they're not able to they're not able to fix that for their kids and you know, you know a little bit of sort of like the you know the Tom Sawyer kind of you know, painting the fence kind of kind of thing or is that Huck Finn um well, Ray, Ray talks about how fun it would be <laughs> yeah, exactly. to paint the fence. Yeah, and then yeah. So everybody wants to paint the fence, and then it gets it done in no time. Um, so that's how it was. And uh, and then, at, you know, as you grow up, you you start filling in the holes there, and you, you learn, like, oh, that's that, that's what it means. That's that's where babies come from. Oh, so it means my my parents did not, you know, biologically produce me, and there were these other people sure so when did those questions start coming about at pretty pretty young age i uh you know as soon as i started to read i guess i was a voracious reader and a voracious voracious uh asker of the question why and uh, you know burned through the dr seuss books just like nobody's business and then went on to bigger things and there was actually a book a dr seuss book called are you my mother and that, I remember that one. That was one. That was a big book for me. And I, was, <laughs> I, I blew like, the lid off. Yeah. Oh yeah. I was like, all right. Steve. <laughs> Seriously. Still serious, is. Yeah. Serious questions very big, early on. Big nostalgia in that in that one. And uh, and there was another another book that I loved called Ask Me Why. And it was like every question why question in the universe. And and um, so it just it just began there. And I, I think I ended up. You know, I got my PhD in evolutionary biology and wildlife ecology and studied genetics, sea turtle genetics. But I think the genetics piece probably grew out of some of that, of, you know, just being curious about traits and, you know, what gets passed on to one's offspring, whether they're sea turtles or humans. And, uh, and that curiosity, that just core deep curiosity that started in a very personal way but then sort of expanded to humanity and and then all of life and then maybe to the universe well you know i think that that segue from uh from the adoption question you know it's interesting that the your it's your first story you know how where are you from like how were you born tell me the story of your birth what did your mom tell you about your birth was it good was it fast was it difficult um was it expected? Was it unexpected? Uh, were you a you know screamy little baby? Were you you know were you a quiet baby? Um, and we all have, well, a, a lot of people have that story, uh, and it's the one you hear a lot, you know, that gets told again and again when you're a kid, and then as you get older, and then you tell it to your kids, and your, you know, grandma tells it to the grandkids, and it's your first epic story about you. And it's really like the coolest thing we actually do in our lives. It is. Like, yeah. I beat like a hundred million other people in this <laughs> yeah, race. Yeah. Shot out of the skin. And I, and I shot out like a cannon into the world. Nailed that egg and that, then that's me. That became me. And We're all winners. Everyone right now listening is a real winner. I want you to know exactly. that. You are enough. And, if you, and, it, and then beyond that, so you, if you get the chance to, to talk to your mom and hear you know, the details of that nine months. Of, She'll tell you, no, I was actually the real winner. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> I pulled it off. <laughs> and then the birth itself, and then, you know, so that that's your first epic, really, truly epic survival story that gets laid down. And if you're adopted, it's different. 
it's a black box. You're just like, the answer is don't know. We're, that's a big unknown, big question mark. We picked you up and you were, you're ready to go. Uh, you know, the people at the adoption store were really nice. We signed the forms and then we had a baby. Got a receipt. And we're ready yeah, to go. Absolutely. There's a lot of paperwork. And so mostly your birth story is just a crap load of paperwork and waiting and hoping. And then they got you. And then everything before that is limbo. And you were, you don't know. You're, you were, you were waiting for somebody to come pick you up. Just you know? this sponge sucking up, <laughs> forming your personality. Yeah, right. Well, it's, it, you know, I keep hearing the studies where it's like, oh, 90% of your personality is formed by the time you're you know, four years old. And then yeah. it gets down to like, well, actually it's like the first year. And they're like, actually like the first day dictates right. your entire personality. Yeah. And, and like what happened in that, you know, in that first month is, anybody's guess is like for me and I think for you know other other adoptees and people who have maybe spent time in in an orphanage or whatever their situation was and um it's a question mark and so have uh, you have you ever done any kind of like um like hypnosis or deep meditation where you've tried to gain any of those memories back I've heard some stories yeah, of people pulling that off um yeah and, and, and the the trick with that is you whatever you come up with is pretty much what you come up with. You have nothing to, nothing to measure it against. And so as a scientist that, you know, it's like, all right, that's interesting, but is it real? Sure. No, nothing, you know, nothing to measure it against. But what I did do, I sort of invented a story and uh, at a, at a young, at a pretty young age, I saw, and this may sound familiar, but I saw um, one of those sort of very unusual, um, water birth videos and they're you know from russia and it's like you know just some hairy people and some water giving birth and and i was like yes i love those videos <laughs> you know what i'm talking about it's like 1970s sort of vintage <laughs> russian you can't understand anything what anybody's saying and it's sort of like a lot yeah, of screaming and moaning and guys, yeah guys have long sideburns and women you know serious body hair and they're in the water and then you know, the woman gives birth and it's, it's awesome. And, uh, and I was like, that's it. That's my story. I was, I'm definitely a water baby. I love the water and I must've been a water birth baby. And, uh, it turns out I wasn't, but that was, that's what I told myself for a while there. And, uh, I was born in New York city and, um, I just imagined my mom was sort of tapped into the, the Russian scene and somehow she, you know, that was how it happened. And, uh, so that, that sort of brings us to this, you know, the conversation of water, but the, um, the role of those stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves and about our families and about our, our history and, and, you know, our, uh, our grandparents and were they, um, swimmers or were they, were they sailors and were they explorers and did they love the water like I do? And, um, you know, when you're presented with a you know, blank slate about your, your birth story, uh, you make one up and try to, I guess, a good one. And I, I always wonder, um, I mean, being a scientist, I, I want to ask you a lot about this um, in terms of imagination, in terms of our emotions and how that connects synapses in our brain. Um, 
because I mean, it just comes out more and more every month of how much your thoughts affect your physiology, how much Absolutely. they affect your life um, from the smallest thoughts to the biggest ones. Um, and I wanted to get your, your um, take on this and, and yeah. the, the, it actually, this interview came about the other night, the idea for this interview when I was watching a movie called inside out. Have you seen Inside yeah. Out? Yeah, it's great. It's great, mm-hmm. right? And it's a yeah. little girl, and it's all of her emotions yeah. in the cockpit, and it's joy and hate mm-hmm. and disgust, and it's like, sadness, don't touch right. that, right? <laughs> and you're like, okay, God, we got joy and Andre, and, you know, and then the kid goes through puberty, and the, the dashboard gets so much more complex. Yeah. Um, but it's it's such a good movie, and like all, all of the... Um, like, there's a scene in the movie, I, I won't give too much of it away, but it's the childhood... Um, imaginary friend yeah and it's like the the imaginary friend is falling into this abyss of of being becoming forgotten because we've let go of so many we we inherently just let go of a lot of memories um that we have but i wanted to get your take on that because it's you understand the brain Mm -hmm. more than most well so you know kind of what you're describing is the is the the pruning process that occurs in in all of us so you you're um your, you know, childhood is incredibly important in play, exploration, imagination, creativity just is blown out. And so you have imaginary friends, you have imaginary, you know, life stories and you and that there's it's seamless kind of between, you know, reality and, and creativity and imagination just kind of blend blend together. Uh, and as we as we age and as we go through life, it's you know we, we go through we go through a pruning process where you you know you you lay down track and you either ride the track or you don't ride the track and the track that doesn't get ridden starts to shrivel and go away essentially, and so you reinforce certain memories, um, and you know what's interesting is that the retelling of stories, uh, you know the the imagination plays in the remembering. And you lay down a new memory when you tell the story, so the the memory gets updated, and so that's why you, that's you know the classic fish story, the fish tale. What's the classic fish tale? Where you know the the fish was you know. Okay, sorry, make sure to get close, or, yeah the. Close to the mic too. Where you know you you caught a fish and it was, you know, a, a foot long, but by the time you've told the story, you know, twenty five times, it was bigger than the boat, and. And then somebody shows up with an actual photograph of the fish that you've been telling the story about that sort of brings it all crashing down back to the reality of... And the person telling the story often really believes the fish tale, you know, the, the epic version of it. And, it, you know, it can happen with surfing, it can happen with all kinds of things that you, you've imagined it being bigger than life and much much more vivid than it was. And then you really do you're not lying you're you've really updated those memories every time you've told that story well you're you're remembering the mem- the memory of the last time you told the story you're not yes. actually remembering the initial experience right and so neurologically that gets laid down in an, in a new way and you that's what you remember that's what you refer to and uh, you would pass a lie detector test because that is what's what's laid down. That's the track that's laid down. So that's fascinating, and it's sort of you know fascinating for the um, you know, some of the conversations going on in the world now about what is you know the truthiness of things. And it turns out it's important to have documentation and it's important to have data about things. Otherwise, 
our brains will will fudge the whole the whole situation and and uh, we get into these arguments that are unresolvable over the size of the fish and other more important things right and i mean especially if uh whether it be a fish or a traumatic experience that you right. are involved with um i trip out a lot on my memories that i um that i have during traumatic experiences actually um I won't hijack the conversation too much, but this is just this just happened to me actually. Yeah. Um, I was at a, a festival called Symbiosis, this great music festival, and um, my girlfriend and I were walking back um, after a late night of partying, and there was um, this art piece because there are all these art pieces around um, around the festival, and there was a guy laying who was face down next to this art piece, and there were a couple people kind of standing around him, and uh, we. We were like, hey, do you know this guy? And and they were like, well, um, no, no, we just showed up, like saw this guy. And I turned him over and he was blue and he was not breathing and he was completely limp. Wow. And I was, I mean, just kicked into this mode of like, holy shit, like go get help yeah. right away. I felt his pulse, like tried to, tried to wake him up, wasn't waking him up, started giving him chest compressions. Right. Right. Um and he ended up waking up after like a minute or two of chest compressions. I wow. think that he had a really weak pulse yeah. um, at the time, but uh, it, it was fucking heavy, man. <laughs> and I and I remember like I went back to to camp and I was just like, I was straight up shaking after this experience, um, and I just like started bawling, crying, like un, un like could not control myself, like shaking, crying let it all out. And then as I was recalling the story to people, I was having a really hard time recalling what actually happened. Cause I was mm -hmm. like, well, did I, did I give him chest compressions and then he woke up or like how long was I actually mm -hmm. giving him chest compressions for? Like this series of events was really difficult to recall even yeah. later that night. Right. Yeah. Um, but I, I want to turn it back over to you right now to kind of tie, tie in a little bit to yeah. that, but like yeah. I haven't had many of those traumatic experiences and it was trippy to watch my own memory and how horrible it was yeah. even just hours after the experience. Well, and your, so your, your memory, your, um, perception of time shifts uh you know your for some people your you know your ability to to do the right thing in that in that mode and that so that, and that's where you know people who make a living at responding well to blue people on the ground face down um they practice yeah and they have to practice because your your gut response is that is is just like holy crap my brain goes into a completely different mode. I'm I'm in sort of you know action red mind, and and then when you're asked to recall it, you're kind of like, wow, I'm, I'm missing some pieces here. What what happened? And then there's there's you know the post traumatic uh, experience, the post traumatic stress that you know is real. I mean, so FYI, pay attention to that because that's that's real and that kind of experience is is the kind of experience that will will show up later in maybe un unexpected ways so i'll uh, also give an anecdote to that story that it was 2 30 in the morning after a very long <laughs> night yeah. of partying and yeah. we had been having a really good time uh and may or may not have been doing psychedelics. Yeah. May or may not have been doing psychedelics <laughs> earlier in the day, but yeah. but I will say that I definitely snapped out right. of that yeah. moment. Well, and that's interesting too. I, I, that was, I mean, yeah. that was really interesting. Yeah. Um, but it's the, the classic 
you know, buzzkill, as they say. <laughs> I mean, that there, there's, a, there's some, some science behind that term uh, that where you, you know, and we've all been there where it's just like, you know, everything's rocking and with our friends and whatever, you know, there's the party. And then, you know, dad walks in the door and that wasn't planned or there's, you know, a police situation or, and it's like, whoa, everybody is suddenly gets a, a, little, a little more attentive and you know um that's it's an amazing ability that we have to to snap back you know through the fog or through the through you know the, the chemically induced um euphoria and get rational for a moment or several moments and then go back to that where we were and lose lose some of the memories of, of what happened and um not you know it's not extremely well understood but um, there's some indications that if you're if you're in a situation where you're you're potent, you've potentially experienced trauma that will lead to some serious post-traumatic stress and you know the, the disorder that can be debilitating that the the uh, appropriately timed uh, ad- administration of opioids uh, can help uh, mitigate that and basically block the uptake of the memory um, so that's sort of a maybe a fancy way of saying that you may be in luck that that experience could um, not suggesting what was going on at your party. If but you have a traumatic <laughs> experience, just take a bunch of mushrooms yeah. and everything will be okay. I, I did not say that, but um, but well, you may want well, to. That's well, I, ha- I actually have a question about that about something. Um, I mean, uh, opioids compared to psychedelics can provide largely different experiences sure. and and I've had experiences on both like um, one for example is when I snapped my arm um, you know and they gave they gave me hydrocodone which is an opi- opioid for seven days I remember watching the second season of House of Cards mm-hmm. while I was on hydrocodone for that week and I remember nothing mm-hmm. it, it's like I it that week did not happen and, and I hate o- like opioids every yeah. experience I've ever had with um, it, having to take them from um, having surgeries and that kind of thing has just been horrible. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I, I would say that my experiences in the past, whenever I've experienced uh, psychedelics or experimented with, with psychedelics, they can enhance memories. Mm-hmm. Um, right. But I, I'm really curious to hear your, because you're a neuroscientist, your understanding of what actually goes on at I, that so time. So I'm I'm trained as a, an evolutionary biologist, and uh, and I'm uh, I'm very interested in neuroscience. Just to make sure we're we're I'm not stepping on any of my neuroscientist colleagues' toes because, but uh, um, really interested in this stuff and particularly how it intersects with with the natural environment and this, the conversation about um, psychedelic you know transcendent experiences is really interesting because i think it's i think it's part of the key to uh to building an unstoppable powerful force for nature and that the people who are truly unstoppable who are just they're they're in it to win it for life period have experienced uh in one way or another transformative transcendent um psychedelic experiences in nature they they know they know what the source is they know what the flow is they know exactly what we're talking about right now and have have lived it and 
have devoted their lives to ensuring that it it's okay, that it, it persists, and there's nothing that can stop us. Um, truly, I mean, the, you know, I've, I've worked with a lot of sea turtle people, sea turtle biologists and conservationists, and the one thing we have in common is that that experience of utter exhaustion at 3 a.m. in the middle, you know, middle of nowhere, as they say, uh, under a starry sky or a stormy sky and watching this ancient creature emerge from the bioluminescent ocean and crawl slowly up the beach, dig a pit perfectly with her back flippers and then deposit a hundred or so beautiful round glowing white eggs into that pit. And it's ear tripping the whole time. I mean, just naturally there and we share that. And that feeling is that it creates the tribe. And that tribe has ensured that these animals haven't gone extinct on planet Earth. And, and that's the driver. It's not um, economics. It's not law, although those, those, those are useful. It's this other thing, this uh, transcendent experience. And I'm very, very interested in the, in the phenomenon of unstoppability and how how people get there uh, and how we can bring more people to to that that point as a force for good of course there's unstoppability as a force for for evil uh but that's that's really it it's the you know you take away the funding you you take away the social support and people are unstoppable and i you know i, I think of uh, right now that the sioux indians and in their relationship to water and relationship to nature and and you know big energy uh, what's going down in, in our country and um, that's that's an, an interesting example of unstoppability and at the core of it is not um, uh, is not a, a financial gain and it's not a sponsorship I think a lot about what you're just talking about in terms of being a lifetime um, activist in mm -hmm. a sense be, being a lifetime like dedicating my life to speaking up on behalf of nature whenever I can um, and it's been a, a tumultuous experience for me um, kind of I mean we've known each other for a while now mm -hmm. for like eight years um, you introduced me when I was a <laughs> young youth activist <laughs> Kyle Tierman um, and I would I would say that my relationship to um, how I interact with nature mm -hmm. has changed so much since we have, since we first met, because a lot of it, I, I think when I first um, was doing this stuff was I was kind of identified as a youth activist. Mm -hmm. Like I definitely, I mean, I, I grew up in the ocean. I have a natural relationship to, yeah, we probably shouldn't pollute the oceans. And yeah. I, I saw it and I got it intellectually and even, you know, oh, I surf, of course, like I want to protect the oceans, but it wasn't actually, um, I think until after my youth activist days when I really had to decide, you know, what do I want to do with my mm -hmm. career? Right. Like the one, the big thing within the environmental movement is, is you lose people, right? Like you lose, yeah. you lose the youth activists cause they're like, Oh, uh, there's not a lot of money in this. I want to go get a corporate <laughs> job. Uh, and I would say that, that there, I had a few experiences, some um, with facilitation of psychedelics, some, without just on trips i mean being out in a place um like indonesia on a boat with quiet sunset mm -hmm. uh looking out at the ocean and 
feeling a kind of connection to the world around me that I had not experienced previously. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say that, I mean, a lot of my kind of time when I, you know, when I will do psychedelics, it kind of shows me a place of connection that I, um, that I now know is there mm-hmm. in a way, um, that I, I don't know how many people have that kind of relationship to it, but I wanted to, I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on that because what we are talking about is it, it can seem kind of abstract to a lot of people, but mm-hmm. I've had experiences out in nature where I really feel that kind of connection to the ocean, to my natural surroundings and, and not, um, knowing that we should protect it just because it's right, but something that's deeper. And, and mm-hmm. I still have obviously a hard time describing it. And I think that you've done a lot more work than I, I have on being able to describe those feelings, but I wanted to get your thoughts on it because yeah. it's something that's really present for me. Yeah. These days. And I think, I mean, part of that, that process and, you know, is not necessarily what you, what chemicals you you consume it's what chemicals your your brain makes and you can get there to that place um you know naturally or you know by by through um a long walk or a long swim or a long run or a fast or um a meditation um and you know i think for for some people it's you know the a the you know the chemical route to it uh is a is is a quicker route to it so that's you know so just put that out there and um you know we took a we took a walk from Oregon to Mexico down the California coast uh over the course of nearly th- 4 months and uh when your mind and your body gets into the rhythm of literally the sun and the moon and the ocean the night and the day. Uh, so when the sun goes down, you're closing your eyes. And when the sun comes up, you're, you're awake and that you're paying attention to the moon because it's telling you things about the ocean and you're paying attention to the tides. And when you're in that, that synchrony, uh, you feel good. You feel great. I mean, I feel like the best version of myself. Uh, and I can remember that from childhood being, camping in the Rocky mountains or in the apostle islands in Lake superior and, you know, around any body of water really. And feeling like this is the best I've, I've felt this year is when I'm, when I'm here in a place like this. Uh, and that, that's, you know, transcendent and transformative. And, and you realize that this is, this is a continuum going back all the way that that feeling is not some, some marketing geniuses plan to make you feel good about, you know, what's in the can. Uh, it's, it's deep, as deep as it gets. It's, it's human and animal and that our ancestors have been feeling that for a long time and singing about it and dancing about it and making art about it and, uh, and protecting it. And that's kind of that's kind of right about where we are right now as a as a species. It's okay. Are we gonna are we gonna be satisfied with a virtual version of that? Uh, it's where you you know you want to feel that while you put on the goggles and the suit or whatever people invent, and you sit on your couch, and you go free diving on your couch, or are we going to protect access to the real deal, uh, where you 
go out your door. You get up off the couch and you go out the door and you move your body a bit and you get to the water and you submerge and you hold your breath and you, you push the edge and you see what you see, you know, expected and unexpected experiences. And, uh, and it's not coming digitally into your eyeballs. It's, it's coming from the, you know, the, the world around you. Um, and that's kind of where we are right now. And I think maybe at the core of that is just a, is curiosity and that's, you know, I was asked the other day, uh, on, on a panel, uh, at South by Southwest eco in, in Austin, um, what I thought the, you know, the number one threat to our planet in the future was, and I know they were expecting something like, you know, ocean, uh, acidification, climate change, ocean warming, extinction. And I said that the, uh, the decline or the demise of curiosity, like deep, pure curiosity about the natural world. That's the biggest threat. And because if you have that in your, in your citizens, um, curious people will find the beauty and the, this, this transcendent experience, and then they'll, they'll work to take care of it. But if your beauty and your transcendence is coming from, from a jar or can, uh, or a screen, you'll protect that. You know, you know, you'll take really good care of what's in the can and, and love it. And you'll take really good care of your phone and you'll put a case around it and protect it. And that's that. And, uh, that's very, very different. Have you always had such a calm demeanor? <laughs> Apparently, I asked my mom about that one time. She said we could put we could put you, uh, we could put you on a blanket in a field with a rock and come back at the end of the day and you'd be, you'd be happy like you know exploring the rock uh, when I was a baby and uh, apparently yeah. It's it's kind of amazing, man. I, yeah, I'm sorry if it's boring. No, it's no, it's not. It's uh, I mean, I don't know how it is for the people out there listening, but for me, like, uh, I feel sometimes that I have somewhat of an anxious demeanor, and Go it's something it. that I'm really working on. Well, through, or be that through, no, through the, meditation, yeah. through whatever it is I can do to take yeah. deep breaths. But seriously, man, when yes. I'm around you, all of a sudden, like my energy drops down, my shoulders relax yeah. a little bit, and, and the air calms down. The right? air calms down a little bit around you, and it's kind well, of it's it's really impressive. But, but I think I think it's worth saying that you know Kyle and I are sitting here in a cabin in the redwoods. It's raining. It's the first rain of like the last five years. There's a fire in the wood stove. We've got a bottle of red wine. And it's just, it's kind of like cozy. So that I'm, I'm not taking all the credit for, for your mood there. It's just, there's, the, there's some things helping me here. So I, I do, um, though, want to, want to give you credit though, around, I mean, your book blue mind, um, you really live that like in, mm-hmm. in a way that where, you know, sometimes you, you listen to an author speak about a subject right. like, um, you know, mindfulness, but they're a super anxious, pissed yeah. off person. Right. And you're kind of yeah. like, nah, you're not yeah. really drinking the Kool-Aid, but, but you are someone who talks about what the ocean can do for us in terms of mental tranquility, yeah. in terms of what it does for our minds. And you really do live that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to dig a little bit more into you, uh, yeah. and kind of how you cultivated that, how you cultivated your ability to talk about the ocean in a way that people will listen because yeah. we all have these things that we care about. 
Um, but very few of us have developed the capacity to do something like coin a really catchy term like blue mind yeah. and then expand upon that. Um, so I want to know a little bit more about your process mm-hmm. um, when think, when kind of thinking about this and, and how to, to reach people with your words. Well, I, I, th- I think that so on the, on the calmness, it's, I'm not taking any credit for that. That's a genetic. Thanks. Thanks mom. Uh, for giving me that gene. You had a good first and, few uh, years. <laughs> kind of, <laughs> despite whatever hiccups and bumps along the... Played you know, a lot of James Taylor to you as a of, child. I think, I think I've just served this calm Scandinavian kind of like deep deep rudder in the water kind of thing going. And, it, and, it, and it's not cultivated or practiced. It's um, And I counter it with, with you know, coffee. So uh, when I need to be you know, sometimes you're asked to be a little more hyper for whatever reason. And, and, um, so that's, you know, black coffee right there. And the, uh, but that's my base setting is, is like long, long haul, you know, I'm a, I'm a long distance runner, swimmer, walker, um, not, you know, speedy Gonzalez. (laughs) That's obvious. Um, that's kind of funny. They even say that, uh, the opposite of speedy Gonzalez. And, um, but the the blue mind stuff it came you know, it came naturally as a conceptually but I I wanted to the book blue mind um, I wanted to read it really that's that's that was the impetus I I wanted to check it out of the library but it wasn't there and I really really wanted I wanted I wanted to know about you know the neuropsychology of this feeling that I've been experiencing my whole life. And I know you have too. And a lot of people are probably still sticking with us here have as well. Um, and I wanted to know about that. And then I wanted to use that knowledge and apply it to our efforts to fix what's broken in, in the aquatic world, in the ocean and the lakes and rivers, but nobody had written the book. And I looked for it. Maybe it was in German. Maybe it was out of print. Maybe, you know, who knows? And I couldn't find that book that I wanted to read. And I tried to get some other people to write it. And it was not successful. And so when I I, uh, I pitched the idea to a, a late, uh, great neurologist named Dr. Oliver Sachs, and he, uh, and he was a water man himself, an avid lifelong swimmer and swim everything he could swim during his life and very very physically fit guy and brilliant scholar and intellect and I pitched it to him and he said that's a great idea you do it (laughs) and that was the moment where I was kind of like oh crap so how so how did you what's your process when you have an idea we're like okay this is a great book for actually getting it into something like and a digestible idea because yeah. that's something that I really respect you for I think yeah. you're really good especially for I mean environmentalists tend like, I don't know if you would consider yourself an environmentalist but I mean you speak on behalf of the oceans a lot <laughs> of times and, and environmentalists um, I find tend to be really bad at messaging. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're really good at it. And when I was just rereading your book, I mean, I'll read a sentence of yours. I'm like, damn, that was a sexy sentence. Like, <laughs> I, <laughs> you really thought about that I, sentence. I like words a lot. I like I I like to re- I like books a lot. I like to read. Um, I like math, I guess. So there's something about that combination. Uh, the the parsimony of getting getting an idea down to two words 
that are evocative and provocative is really, I love, I love that process. I, you know, in another, another life, I may have gone in, into marketing I may have been told that that would have been a good idea and this doesn't turn me on, but the, um, but the process of taking, you know, a lot of information and bringing it down to very few words and very few images is, is, uh, that, that stick and that are, um, that are then disseminated. So kind of like, you know, we, we give out blue marbles to people that, that we, uh, admire and ask them to pass them on. And there's a million of them going around. And in a way that's, that's kind of, it's, um, that's a, that's without words. You know, it's a, it's, it's a, it's an eye to eye exchange of a very, very simple item. There's a blue sphere made of recycled glass, just sand. And that is, um, that's the essence of it. So how, how to, I love thinking about that. How do you, how did we humans share the biggest, most important ideas before we had pencils and before language? How did, how did we get by? How did we pass things on? And how, uh, and it was through simplification, but clarity and you didn't, there's no bullshit. There's no spin, spin killed, spin kills. I mean, quote me on that one. There's a, there's one, um, spin kills. Like we're all, our society is all about spin and spin kills people. And I hate it. Uh, and it's dig, dig into that more. Why do you hate it so much? Because it's, it's, it's about taking, taking something and spinning it, you know, away from its, its purity. I, I've been, you know, I've been accused of being too earnest, uh, as if that's a bad thing. And I, and I think I was like, let's, let's get all the earnest people together and fix some problems. That's kind of my response. And, and even, you know, even people that I am, who are working on behalf of the environment that, you know, if it's about spin, it's about often about exaggeration or misrepresentation and not always, you know, I understand that there's people spinning for good, but, um, just fundamentally doesn't feel right. Uh, I, I rather just bring it down to the few words of the, the wordless communication. Um, a lot of the things I, I do that I'm most proud of haven't required funding have been um, poorly or non not funded uh, and have been, you know, successful by my measure. <laughs> um, and there's something about that, too. You know, it isn't just about lots of money and lots of spins going to save save the environment. Uh, that's just not going to work. That's that's brittle. Um, I think earnest, clear, simplified communication about this, you know, fundamental matrix of life, uh, which is water, um, say it, just say it and mean it and then back it up and don't stop. And that's kind of the, the approach I've taken. It's like, we're going to, are we going to save turtles? Let's do it. Let's bring everybody together. The turtle eaters, the turtle hunters, the turtle lovers, the turtle biologists. Um, and let's get over our differences and let's, let's get this done make sure this species right here doesn't go extinct. What it, what have you seen in all of your years um, of being an, an ocean lover uh, of really successful campaigns, um, whether it be with turtles, I'm guessing you have some good yeah. examples or anything else. I think that it's really important um, 
from my earnest point of view, I think that it's very important that we look at bright spots. Yeah, absolutely. And, and whenever we can look at the bright spots of the world and see what's working, we can kind of move towards that more. Otherwise, it, it kind of gets, the conversation gets reduced back to this kind of moronic, anxious, oh God, we're all going to die. The mm -hmm. ocean's horrible. The ocean's yeah. filled with trash. The ocean's, you know, acidific, you know, yeah, has acid right. in it and everything's <laughs> dead. Right. And then it's like, well, why try and save it? Um, but I, th I think that you've done an especially good job mm -hmm. at kind of seeing what the bright spots are, yeah. explaining them clearly and allowing people to feel like they can get involved. Yeah. So I, I agree. I think, you know, I think it sort of is worth saying that, there is a crisis. There are problems. And, and by not going straight to that as a strategy is not to suggest that everything's fine. So then just put that out there straight out. I think it is good to keep the optimism flowing. Uh, it is really good for our brains to, to, you know, find a handle, find a solution, find something that makes us feel good and, and move towards that rather than, uh, rely on guilt and fear and facts um, to, to win the day, although those are useful as well. Um, so, uh, how are, how is guilt and fear useful? I think you know. I think when you feel, I mean, we have we have these emotions for a reason. Fear is fear is important. So when it's time to run fast, it's time to run fast. Uh, but you can't run fast all day long. Well, there's a few people who can, but most of us can't, and you burn out. Um, there's a, there's this, this concept that I just was getting into at, at a conference I just came from in Little Rock, Arkansas, uh, about uh, toxic information. And when you deliver toxic information at the wrong time, you can take people down. Uh, you can create post-traumatic stress uh, and lose the whole thing. Um, What's an example of toxic information? So the example from the meeting I just came from is not about the ocean, but it's uh, giving giving someone who just learned about their own mortality uh, and their family uh, an overload of of what people f may feel like is is useful facts about the situation. Um, rather than truly useful information uh, and empathy for what's going on. And what, uh, if, if, if the facts are delivered out of context without relationship, um, they can be devastating and cause post-traumatic stress. So if your, your loved one is, is, is dying, going to die and the, messages is delivered by the you know the healthcare provider and in a way that is you know what i call toxic information what others call toxic information what does that um, look like uh it looks like a very very clear very cold very clinical delivery of of you know the the prognosis um without context without without empathy by someone that may have just come in, sat down in front of you for that moment, and then is gone. Uh, so you don't know them, you don't trust them, and now they've just delivered the super bad news and lots of facts, and then they're gone. Um, 
that can cause cause unnecessary post traumatic stress in in a family uh, if if the family member is terminally ill. Um, that's not necessary. And I we so you know I was at a conference a hospice conference and we were discussing this, and I immediately thought of this conversation about the environment. We do that all the time. That is what that's what we're funded to do. We just you know check your Facebook page. Is there a bloody dolphin? right there, like when you wake up in the morning, maybe. Um, that's what we do. We deliver shock and trauma uh, visually. Um, and that, you know, has its, has its place. But if that's what we're, that's, that's our diet. There's uh, an inordinate amount of shock and trauma in the media, especially when, like, <laughs> for me working in media, I understand, like, the power of that thumbnail, the yeah. power of that title to get people to click on it and be like, Oh my God, that's so horrible. The, the world is so horrible. People are so horrible. There's nothing we can do about yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go yeah. grab a six pack now. Yeah. Well, that, you know, it's interesting that the, the probably the most, um, fan and hate mail that I ever got was, I wrote an article that's for the Huffington Post and the title was the ocean is not full of plastic because it's not. I've, I mean, let's go. We can walk there and I'll show you an ocean that's not full of plastic. Now, there's plastic where it shouldn't be and there's way too much of it. And it's 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 killing things and it's disgusting. Absolutely. But the message that the ocean is full of plastic and, and that the word plastic has become synonymous with ocean uh, is is a problem. It's It's kind of, uh, it's bummed my kids out to the point where they don't want to go with me to the ocean because we, all we do is beach cleanups. And, and, uh, so there's a, you know, there's a, there's a place for the correct delivery of the facts, the guilt, the fear. Uh, and that's probably after you've gotten people to that place of they've experienced some transcendent, transformative, psychedelic, whatever, you know, whatever, whatever is the joyous falling in love, head over heels, wow, this is the best I've felt ever, maybe. Um, and and facilitating that first. And then they become unstoppable. And then we build a movement. Uh, and if, you know, if the measure of success is how many likes and clicks and eyeballs you've reached, um, you know, that's going to that's gonna lead you down a different path. And that's n- not necessarily the one that, that solves the problem. Uh, and so... I don't, you know, I don't have the answer. I don't have the answers. What, what do you see, though? I mean, you do a lot of thinking about this. What do you see down the the line of? Um, I mean, you could call it utopian, but what do you see as the utopia for our oceans um, moving forward? Because I think that a, a big issue that I see when I have these conversations with the people is they can't actually define the solution. They can talk. Mm-hmm endlessly about the problem but then when asked to talk about well, what's at least the vision that you see for a healthy uh, ocean future um, I'm curious to know what you see that as will you paint that picture for me I think the the base of it is uh, and, you know some people may be familiar with Tom Blake uh, and and his uh, con- contribution to the enjoyment of the ocean and and his roots uh, up on Lake Superior, but he, he uh, etched on a rock um, the simple phrase "God equals nature" up in uh, Washburn, uh, Wisconsin, 
that's it. Like that, the acceptance and not in, in, in the most ecumenical, um, respectful, uh, compatible way that are those of us who are not really spiritual develop that and find it in nature. Those who are uh, of a spiritual tradition extend it to include nature and understand that that, you know, those, those things go together so that we're, we're not fighting over, over spirituality and that we recognize that without, without nature, without the ocean, without our waters and, and forests, um, we're super big trouble. And, uh, and that's the, you know, that bringing that, being able to say the word spiritual and being able to say the word love in public as a scientist is something I'm very proud of. I've, I've actually fashioned my career around the ability to, you know, be able to do that, uh, and not, not lose my job or not, not be, you know, ostracized. And maybe that's happened a few times as well, but that, Hey, if you're not being ostracized <laughs> by some people, you're not rolling. doing anything right. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that's it. That fundamental. And that sounds, you know, maybe that sounds like, you know, we're maybe it sounds like we're sitting in a cabin in the redwoods drinking wine, talking about this, but and we are, but that's the uh, oh god, these Californians, <laughs> yeah, but that's it. I mean, that and that's it, you know, that's it in Little Rock, Arkansas, too. Sure, yeah, that's it's the same story. Um, when people fight for a lake, a river, an ocean, a forest, a species, it's you know it's not a financial thing. It's a, it's something else and it's a spiritual thing and let's just say it. And, uh, and I don't care what your religion is, but are you, are you, are you on board to, you know, to be unstoppable and, and put things back together? How do you, um, so let's, let's bring that down. Cause I think that you, you touched on something really important, but, uh, someone listening now might be like, well, Okay, how now do what? I, how do now what? Yeah, how yeah. do I, how do I actually get involved? I mean, yeah. is it as simple as like getting involved with your group? Is it yeah. donating? Is it just supporting those people? I mean, I've heard it, uh, a quote from you in another podcast where it's just like if if there are activists in your community, you need to be supporting them, even yeah. if you're not directly getting involved. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I struggle with knowing exactly what to tell people when they they mm-hmm. ask me that question, but I want to get your take on it. I say, you know, do the little things and do the big things if you can. I mean, if your if your calling is to spend your life, you know, saving sea turtles, do it. Like, just don't don't stop. Figure it out. Do what you have to do and do it. If your calling is to um, support your neighbor who's spending their lives doing those things, do it. Like, do the little things and do the big things. Don't feel bad that you're just doing the little things. Do them. And don't, but don't do nothing. And that's it. I mean, that's, I mean, that's it. (laughs) It's not that complicated. Do the little things or do the big things. And if, you know, if, if, um, your life circumstances are such that you don't have the time bandwidth for the big things, do the little things and, uh, you know, nothing, doing nothing's not an option. Who are some people who you've seen live really successful lives? Because I know that you measure success differently than <laughs> just money, obviously. Yeah. Uh, you've dedicated your life to having a holistic um, success mm-hmm. and a significance. Um, but I want to know what people you really look up to or really respect and why. 
So my, you know, I'd say my personal heroes are some of the fishermen I work with in, in Baja, uh, who, you know, really shift made, made changes in order to do what they do more sustainably to, you know, to work for the recovery of endangered animals to create marine protected areas and still call themselves fishermen and women. Um, that, you know, I mean, I always have marveled at, at what that really took. I mean, it's, it's easy to, to tell it in a little story here, but, uh, to go against in a way your community hang on and then come out the other side successful, you know, by whatever measure, um, it's pretty, pretty inspiring and you won't hear much about these folks, um, unless we're, you're here with us. Um, but they're, yeah, they're the heroes. And I, and I think everybody who works in, in, uh, works for justice, environmental and social justice will tell you a version of that, that it's, it's not necessarily the, um, the big money and it's not necessarily the big megaphones. Um, you know, the people who are the true heroes are the ones who are, you know, really sacrificing socially, economically, psychologically, uh, in the field, on the ground, in the communities and pushing through, coming out the other side, um, with the change in, you know, having happened, whatever that change is. Uh, and so that can, you know, uh, the inner cities or remote fishing villages in Mexico, um, and the, you know, the accumulation of all of those people doing those things is what has, you know, solved big problems. Um, small entrepreneurs, uh, and, you know, inventing things, um, and then figuring out how to scale what works. Um, you know, people fighting for what's right and not giving up even when the you know, society is saying don't don't do that. That's, you know, that's not fundable or that's not a, a career, uh, good career choice, but doing it anyway. And, uh, that's, that's it really. And, you know, some of those people, you know, people you've heard of who have become, you know, really national, international leaders. And some are just quietly doing their thing, you know, in their communities and don't want to be heard of, you know, all right, ladies and gentlemen, we are Cheers. back. We're out of the cabin, and we are now at the Davenport Roadhouse, which is why you're going to hear some background noise. But we're keeping the conversation going over another glass of wine and a beer. And there was one thing that we were started chatting about on the ride over here, and I know you want to get into this more, which is the relationship between water, death, yeah, and how we can incorporate water into dying. Uh, to yeah. leave this world in a more graceful way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, most people don't really feel very comfortable talking about end of life, uh, end of their own life, and end of their loved ones and their parents' lives. It's not, not a popular topic. Um, it's definitely a good thing to talk about with your, your family, um, especially if your parents are aging. Um, but, uh, you know, there's this concept of, of water birth, you know, that if you, you talked about earlier, uh, women are, are given that option to give birth and labor in water. 
uh, and it's, it's pretty effective as far as reducing pain and, and promoting relaxation during labor and, and childbirth. And I was thinking, well, what about death and at the end, end of life? Uh, what if we were offered that as an option? Uh, if, if, of course, your, your death is predictable. Um, and with our, you know, our country, our, the baby boomers kind of they're aging, and you know, they're, they are going to reinvent death as they've reinvented everything uh, that, that they've done, uh, from sex to childbirth and all the way through their lives. And, uh, and I, so I think there's an opportunity to really rethink what, what would a good death be like and would it involve water? If you've lived a life, a waterful life, um, do you want to die in water? You know, and I'm not talking about drowning. I'm talking about just peacefully um, resting. And, yeah, that statement, know, might, that statement could be misconstrued. Yeah. Um, like this is not a, for, a forced um, Not forced, or, but um, yeah, like I, I think I'd take the, um, what's the route that, that people take? Um, the Hemlock Society? Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. 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 I mean, it, it's a conversation that should involve any, anybody who's really engaged in, you know, thinking differently about death. Um, but having been through the death of my biological father and my adoptive father in the past recent past years, uh, they're both lovers of water, and um, they both would have checked that box and requested th- uh, that facility if it if it had been available. And and so a, a recent conference where I spoke was a hospice conference in Little Rock, Arkansas. I presented this idea to professionals and said to come talk to me if this resonates in any way and 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 many of them did and uh you know from the heartland it's not not a hippie california idea is you know something that seems to resonate uh with a lot of people and if if you've had a lifelong fear of water of course probably not going to be your thing but for anybody who who's uh lived lived a a life where water was important at every stage of the way at every age maybe maybe it's an option so what, what would you what does that actually look like though um if it's i mean is, would it be like an iv as you're in a comfortable nice bath would it like how how do you see that actually playing out so that it could help people um exit this world in a more calm way because I, it's, yeah. it's it is such an important conversation i'm happy we're having it right now because yeah. right now I, I have two grandparents actually that are both dying um and it is such a stressful and gross uh world that the last few years of our lives um are are filled with doctors they're filled with people treating us like children Mm -hmm. i mean my, my dad just the other day um it was recommended to him by a doctor that they take um my grandfather to one of these homes and he said he went into one of the homes and he was like i just couldn't do it it's it's just people drooling on themselves being forgotten Mm -hmm. um and waiting to die alone and it's it's something that's so sad and it's something that we don't really talk about very much in our society so i'm happy that you're talking about it and and i want you to go into it a little bit more of like what does that actually look like so i'm i'm not definitely not an expert on on hospice and end-of-life care and and nor um am i not an advocate for um you know assisted suicide or or you know the right to die but it's all it's all connected and it's all part of this conversation and i think uh 
it will continue to be. You know, the 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 movement to give give back our, you know, our ability to die the way we want to is is underway and, and going to expand. Uh, but I think what it looks like is initially a conversation. So when somebody is in, in sort of that end-of-life mode, uh, make sure you know what their water was and is. Like where Do you want to see or get in your water again? You've got a, a limited amount of time left. And if the answer is yes, then you, Kyle, as grandson, may want to take it upon yourself to facilitate that to say, grandma, grandpa, mom, dad, let's go to the ocean. This is not gonna, may not be easy, maybe logistically challenging, but or let's go to the river, let's float. I, I got a boat, I got a raft, uh, I got a board, um, let's, get, let's get wet. Water is also um, a thing that as you get older, you, you talk about this a little bit in your book, um, people just start hurting man like our bodies just start hurting more and more as we get older and the weight of gravity begins to hurt more and more and a lot of times people's only experience where they aren't hurting as as they get older is in water when they feel that weightless feeling and and even even for young people i mean the kind of the explosion of float tanks over the last couple years has been profound um, to show what it does to our mental states yeah. and and I'm guessing even more profound as you get older yeah I've been I've been floating every everywhere I, I travel um, both indoors at these float centers as well as uh, in you know Lake Michigan and Barton Springs and Austin everywhere I go I'd seek out water to to go swim and float and spend time in and uh, I agree. So, you know, it's a, it's a therapeutic environment. Uh, and if you're hurting, if your body just hurts and gravity is your enemy, water's, water's the answer. And so figuring that out, whether it might be a pool, might be a tub, and it might be, a, you know, your favorite body of water. It could be a nice, nice When lake. I'm 100 years old, I just want to get pushed down the face of like a 60-foot yeah, right, wave exactly. at Mavericks and <laughs> go out on in, top. Strap me in and let's do this. <laughs> that, yeah. that or get stressed. <laughs> a friend of mine told me this. He's like, you know how I want to go out, man? I want to get dressed up in a Superman costume and just thrown out of a plane. <laughs> but that's his personality. Yeah. Um, I think the, I mean, the key is to do it in a way that is uh, not going to inconvenience um, where you land. So right. Uh, <laughs> There's a big <laughs> circle. Yeah. You're going to land in this circle. The Mojave might be the way to go. But, but you know, it's so... That's really it, you know, and if, if there's a therapeutic application in, you know, in a hospital or in a home, I think it, it resembles the water birth um, uh, technology, for lack of a better word. So a, a warm pool of water, maybe with some saline aspect, some Epsom salts, uh, um, you know, a heater, a filter that's portable. You can bring it into, into the hospital room. You can bring it into your home. And, and use it and get you know get your get your uh, family member or loved one in into the water and uh, you know the all all of you know I discussed this with the, the doctors at the hospice conference and all of the sort of you know the technical barriers are are surmountable so the you know a lot of times people have open wounds towards the end of their lives and 
so there are, are wet dry bandages that will, will work underwater um, the you know, technology is available this in you know, the, whether it's a combination of the medication, the you know, traditional medicine that, that's ongoing and a you know, submergence in water. Um, I just, I'm just interested in the conversation. And, what do you and, think happens when we die? But I have no idea. That's really, the, uh, it's really wide, a wide open uh, situation. Um, what, here's, so here's what I do know. Uh, we, we, bury, we bury our dogs under the plum tree in the front yard and their bodies uh, disintegrate and feed the plum tree. And um, we had a, a dog, a black lab named Blue, and a red lab named Red, and we buried them both under the plum tree. And my little girl, Julia, when she was much younger, said, when you mix red and blue, you get purple. And that year, after they were both buried there, we had bonanza of purple plums. And Julie and I have had an ongoing conversation about what I do know, which is our, our bodies, our, you know, our material bodies break down. They become part of the earth. Uh, they are nutrition for other organisms, including trees and worms. And trees grow, plums sprout, and birds eat the plums. Birds fly up the canyon, and they, they poop. And yeah. that feeds everything. So, um, I we dig into that as deeply as we can. As yeah. far as our souls, or if we have souls, uh, I don't know. That's, yeah, that's my. I don't know concern. either. Yeah. I don't know either. What, what I do know though is that I want to go out in a peaceful way. Yeah. And I would bet that it has. If there is something after this life, um, it really affects us the way that we go out. If we yeah. die in a traumatic situation, if we yeah. die in war, if we die in some kind of crime um it's got to affect our souls in some way yeah. if there is a soul yeah. if it continues after this i, I believe yeah. that there is in some way yeah. I, I don't know I don't, the I don't specifics know. of I, it but as far as is there a soul i don't know i know that in life there is soulfulness yeah. so that's generally my it happens in louisiana I actually try, i try my best <laughs> down be, in the french quarter it's where yeah, people I try are to occasionally be soulful yeah um but I know I know that that's a real thing. Soulfulness is real. I don't know if the soul is, but um, leave that to other other people to to figure out. But um, what's yeah. what's something that you used to really believe that you don't believe anymore? Good question. Um, used to believe, don't believe anymore. I and I think you know I, I'm not I'm not a cynic. Uh, I think cynicism is the is a curse. I think that's one of our biggest problems is cynicism. Um, but I think I used to have a naive understanding of uh, how things work and, you know, you know government and, and big business um, and a trust. And I used to believe more in these big brands that they were, you know, that Coke really added life. Or uh, you could open happiness by just popping a can, um, and that it was all good, you know, because it was on TV. W uh, was it more that like, oh, these people are doing their best, and like, yeah, I mean, I think, like, like I, the the obesity epidemic just kind of happens out of 
no it's one's really trying. Yeah. yeah, like yeah. it's I, your it's the person's fault, and there's no one yeah. really trying so to. As a, you know, do as a that. kid, I think like a lot of a lot of people, that's why we have advertising because it works. That, um, that you know what if it was on TV, well, it, ha- it had to be good. You know? Sorry, I'm, I'm eating Brussels sprouts, <laughs> and I'm, very, very good I think Brussels I might be sprouts. eating your f- yeah. <laughs> with your fork. <laughs> oh, see my fingers. Um, let's get back into that belief, though. Yeah, I mean, because it's something that. Um, so I uh, I have this conversation with a lot with people all the time about like genuine corruption, right? And and the corruption of the mind, corruption of business. Um, how much is are there? people that need to be stopped in the world and how much do bad things happen just based off of negligence is that kind of what you're you're speaking yeah, to a little and bit that, and that some of the the worst actors can have the biggest uh, sources of funds yeah. to appear to be the most um, benevolent and good doing um, I mean really to teach the world to sing and to add life and open happiness are some amazing lofty goals. And those are all Coke, Coca-Cola slogans. And, uh, and we know them. We, even, we know the jingles. We know the logo. We know, we, we, and we trust it. Because, because why? Because they spent bil- literally billions of dollars building that trust and, and because of actually like having a lot of smart people like yourself in rooms understanding how the brain works exactly. and understanding how they can penetrate a part of your brain to make you believe that you can get happiness from a coca-cola from a can yeah. and, and so that you know that that yeah as a kid you kind of you see it if it's on tv well it must be at least good and maybe great in order to be there and um, yeah, and those those illusions. So um, you know, like a magazine like Adbusters. You ever you ever read that? It's yeah, sort a little of, bit. You know, just kind of yeah. you know, sort of is the reverse of that, and it's kind of like wow, you can you can accomplish a lot with propaganda. And was it's there, not, not always good. Was there a moment that uh, made that switch for you? Um, or a time you know, in your life specifically when you felt like you became less naive? I, you know, I, I think spending spending time alone in in wilderness and sort of you know where you you actually read the bottle of the soap that you've got in your backpack, and in the, in the case of this case it was Dr. Bronner's and you, you know, all the fine print on Dr. Bronner's, but uh, where you you check in, and go what I, you know what what do I really need? What is what is food? Um, what makes me happy? And your your bullshit detector gets really really good, and you come back, and you look around and you're like, you see, say say you know not to beat up on Coke, but you see a Coke ad for what it is. Oh fuck Coke! Let's <laughs> yeah, beat up on that. Yeah. Are you kidding me? Yeah, you gotta look at it. <laughs> They're and creating go, obesity. You know, yeah, this trying is. to sell you sugar and things <laughs> yeah. that's gonna make you happy. <laughs> and they're really good at it. And you kind of look at that ad and you you look at it for the first time and you go. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Wow! Really? Like what the hell? That's that's so weird, and and it made me cry. And it's you know it's a nice story, and and at the end they're selling you sugar water. And, um. You seem like you've, you're good at knowing what makes you happy. Mm. Like like you're a very f- uh, fully realized human. 
in, in the way that you know what you like, you know what you don't like. Has that always been the case, or were you uh, anxious and lost as a kid? And like, when did that really. what, did that switch at a certain point? What what is that? I don't like. I, don't. I want what you have, man. <laughs> like, bottle that shit I got up. A, I got a. I got a. Early on, I had it. I had the you know, the simple thought that I I really wanted to enjoy what I did. You know, I wanted, I wanted my life to feel like a perpetual. I would say vacation, but it, you know, a, a good, good, meaningful time, and, uh, and my my adoptive father was a, a business guy, and I saw what he did, and he was good at it, but it was a grind. He was at first at his desk in the morning, visited his office, you know, took the candy off his secretary's desk. It was sort of like very, very kind of corporate business world and I realized that's not what I wanted to do and he worked hard and he provided a great education to us and very giving guy but I decided you know I want to want to do, do it differently and and committed to that early on and then made some choices that were you know not necessarily good financially but they were consistent with that that idea what's an example of and that Oh, you know, leaving leaving a job um, where I didn't feel like my values and the job were lined up, um, giving up a, a salary and benefits without a plan, <laughs> coming home to my wife and saying I you know, I did the right thing, and she said, you know, "Congratulations." Now what? And the answer was, "I don't know." Uh, I'm still figuring that. That's out. That's ballsy, man. Kinda, yeah, that's, kinda, <laughs> that's super you know, ballsy. You, most I mean, it's, well, it's one. That. I mean, it's one thing like if you're 23 and like yeah. I'm gonna go get a VW and dr- yeah. drive from Alaska to Mexico yeah. and it's gonna be amazing and it's like oh okay that's fine but like yep. if you got a wife and a kid, maybe a and, kid a and a mortgage and that's yeah that's super ballsy right so I, I mean I've I've been told in one way or another that I was committing career suicide um, it's now seven times. That you've been told that? Uh, yeah. yeah and so, and, and di- using different words, but essentially that that's the phrase. And, uh, and so my, my career is deeply dead, uh, and I've, I've killed it seven times. Um, and here we are talking about it. So I don't know. I don't, I'm, I'm not the guy that really asks for career advice of, uh, really. Just if, it, if you've gotten to this point in the podcast and you thought otherwise... Here's the, you know, here's the, the spoiler. Don't listen to me. <laughs> right. But um, but at the same time, like, you, you have become a fully realized human in a lot of ways. And you're kind of killing it. Like, you have this amazing house in one of the most beautiful places in the world. Mm-hmm. You've gotten really good at talking about what it is that makes you happy. Right. You've affected a ton of people. I mean, when, when people talk about you and they, when they read the book, it's not just like a, that was cool. I'm, I mean, you get emails, you get comments from people that are true, truly impacted by yeah. it. And I think that that's something to distinguish because you can have, yeah. you can be an Instagram model 
with 7 million followers, but if you actually call on those followers to get up and go out and do something, they're all fair-weathered followers because they're just following your Image. photos of photos of your body, right? But like what what you have done and I mean the the reason that I enjoy reading your stuff, the reason I enjoy talking to you is because you you're a searcher, man. You're right. you're constantly searching yeah. for something deeper. That's nice to hear. Auth- authenticity. I appreciate, I appreciate totally, that. Totally, man. That's like a little boost right there from you. Nah, and, big uh, time, man. The um, yeah, and the reality is, if you're doing anything that's sort of out of the out of the box, out of the norm, anywhere near an edge, uh, it's it can be it's a challenge, and you don't always get the the mainstream support, and and so you figure out how to. Had to persist or not, yeah, or, or just bail, and, yeah, and lots of people bail and lots of people don't, and um, yeah, I, 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 th- I think that the biggest fear—I mean, it, the the biggest fear that I have—and and tell me if this is all true for you—but like, it's to to do some, put your heart and soul into something, whether whether it be a, a movie or a book or, or some project that you really believe in, you put it out there and it's not so much hatred that I fear, it's ambivalence. Mm-hmm. Like that yeah. that's people that, that society will re- react in an ambivalent way. I call that gray mind. The so gray there's, mind. There's blue mind, there's red mind and then there's this thing that's like red mind's great. Red mind is like active and fired up and if you're just all red mind you're in trouble. But Gray mind is deadly. Gray mind is numbed out, indifferent, ambivalent, just as you said. And uh, you see that sometimes. You know, what do you what do you believe in? What are you fighting for? What do you what are you up to? What are you thinking about? And people give you, like, yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. What, what I don't understand the question. Yeah. Uh, my eighth that, grade <laughs> teacher killed my curiosity. <laughs> I have no love for this world anymore. That's sad. And, it's so sad. And it's, so, and the answer is like. Hold my hand until you feel the water hit your eyeballs. Yeah. That's my answer. Yeah. Straight up. Like, you, gray mind, let's fix that shit. Yeah. And we're getting wet. Yeah. And it's it's going to feel so yeah, good. Yeah, I just signed you up for a Wim Hof course. You're getting <laughs> yeah, right. out of this yeah, shit right now. Exactly. We're putting you in some trunks yeah, yeah. and throwing you in an ice lake. Yeah, exactly. And Which is for real. I mean, we're kind of like, t- we're joking about it, but no, for, for real, real man. Straight like, up. I mean, we all have our down days. I, I have my down days. I think yeah. especially people, I mean, <clears throat> it's like this, right? You can you can have a, a life where you you go to an office, right? And you like do your, your office thing. And there's nothing wrong with that. Some people enjoy that setting a lot more than just working at home but we live in this world now where more and more you can do your work from home right and it's kind of just about you basing like having your schedule doing your thing creating your work but the danger in that is that everyone else goes to work and you're left at home alone and you're like all right like time to time to kick it into gear and for me i have low days i I have days where i like do not want to get out of bed and go make some calls and do some emails that's going to, you know, further a new episode that I want to make. And what I will do, I'll go in the ocean. Yeah. And it's cold as shit. And I'll get in there and I'll come out and feel like Wolverine. Yeah. And I'll get out there and be like, all right, all right, let's do this. Yeah. I'm going to make those emails, calls. And it is, it's so for real. I mean, Wim Hof, who, if you guys don't know about him, just Google the guy, (laughs) the Iceman. He does what he does because his wife was clinically depressed and committed suicide. And that is, I mean, when he talks about that, he talks about his drive coming from people to not just knock them out of that gray mind. 
which sometimes you need that physical cold water yeah. to wake you up out of that. Well, and that's you know, and that really is part of the part of the blue mind conversation is get in the water. Just like that's 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 a simple version of it. And you know, we've we've worked with um, folks dealing with post-traumatic stress who are you know really in in a in a state that is not good for them, not good for society, not good for their families. They're giving up, they're depressed, they're just, you know, having a hard time. And the thing, and there's some res awesome research about to come out that I can't say too much about until it comes out, but a guy did his PhD dissertation on Operation Surf, 95 men and women who participated in surf therapy, and mind-blowing results is what I, all I'm going to say. And I'll let him come on your podcast and, and tell you about it. I'd love to. Uh, love yeah. to have him on. And uh, So we see it. We see it and we know it. Yeah. You, know it. you know it personally. You know it innately. You know people who have survived as long as they have because they have that outlet. That's their, their, it's their medicine. Water is medicine. And it's the big reset button. It's the place we go to relax. It's the place we go to... Um, escape our, our demons uh, it's a space, place we go to find creativity uh, it's a place we go to mourn um, and that's let's talk about you know let's talk about that as a society let's let's further value our oceans lakes and rivers as as medicine for mental health and physical health and let's let's call it what it is um, yeah, the, the ocean gives us oxygen and seafood. It covers, you know, three-quarters of the planet. Um, it employs a lot of people. It makes makes life possible, but also makes life worth living. And we need to talk about that. And, that, you know, we'll back it up with science all day long if that's your hang-up. Yeah. And, uh, and that, that will help us revalue, you know, here what's in our backyard uh, in... You know, in Little Rock, Arkansas, it's the Arkansas River running right through town, and and you know it's the White River and the Red River up north, northern Arkansas, and those are places that are important to people from birth to death. And let's talk about that, and let's make sure we properly value um, the blue space, the green space around us, and and call it medicine because it is. Amen, and brother. That's that's the story. Amen. Anything else you want to talk about? That's it. We got it. Let's let's do another one of these soon. Yeah, I, I love this. This is I'm, apologies for any of the background noise, but hey, this podcast is happening we all over the, the world. We are at Davenport Roadhouse having a drink and some Brussels sprouts. By the way, the field across the street uh, and that big building across the street was originally a Brussels sprouts packing shed. I had no idea. This is we're in Brussels sprout. Brussels sprout world. Land. Yeah. For those people out there who don't enjoy Brussels sprouts, they're like, ah, oh, shut it's up so already. Good. Brussels sprouts are one of those things that you either love or you hate. To do a whole show on Brussels sprouts. Yeah. Screw the ocean. If you really want to talk about world change, it's just Brussels sprouts. It's, it's like one of those things where you're, it's like, are you a dog person or are you a cat person? Are you a Brussels sprout person or not? All right, guys, Brock, we, wait, we are wait, signing wait, wait, up. Wait, wait, wait. Right over that. <laughs> While I chomp on this Brussels sprout, I've brought so many Brussels sprouts haters right here and converted them to Brussels sprouts lovers. Well, there's kind of like a, a sweetness to it. They yeah, put syrup like on this? Yeah, like a ponzu sauce, mm. and they're deep fried, and then they're... Um, 
I think they throw them in the wood fired oven. Oh, so they're I'm good. in. I'm in. Davenport. There's Roadhouse. no no affiliation with Davenport Roadhouse <laughs> in this conversation, not but not yet, not yet. We're working on it. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jay. Head over to my website, kyle.surf, to give me any feedback on this podcast. And you can also sign up for my weekly newsletter where I send out my latest mini documentaries, podcasts, and things I am digging. Until next time, get out in the ocean and have a fantastic day.